Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author Sam Baker. You'd be hard-pushed to think of anyone who has done more for women writers than this week's guest. 25 years ago, Kate Moss was working in publishing when she looked around and realised that everyone on all the award shortlists looked familiar. Pale, male and stale. The result, the Women's Prize for Fiction, has just celebrated its 25th anniversary and given a much-needed voice to women's writing. She's also a best-selling author of nine novels and short story collections, including the millions-selling global smash hit Labyrinth. So many brilliant things have happened. I think feminism has done so much good. And I just feel that we sometimes we get trapped in a very negative spiral, that we look about the, the things that people are not agreeing on and forget that 98% of stuff actually everybody feels the same about. Join Kate as she talks about her new book, The City of Tears her other job as a full-time carer and why caring is a feminist issue, the devaluing of women's work and why she really can't wait to be 60. Kate, welcome to The Shift. It's lovely to see you, darling, in your lovely flat. Are you having a brilliant time up there? Yes, I love it so much. How lovely. How very lovely. I'm so, so pleased. Your microphone is fluffing a bit. I had a little phase in the summer where I was able to do them in person and yeah. and it was just so much better because you could yeah. just sit and have yeah. a cup of tea and I know and all of this zoomery and we're all a bit fed up with it. I've moved yeah. my polo neck down. I think it might have been that rubbing on the microphone. Let's talk a bit about The Burning Chambers because it's the second book of The Burning Chambers, isn't it? The City of Tears that's out in January. Yes, yes it is. And It's been the most extraordinary experience. I've never planned a series of novels before, even though my earlier series that's called the Longer Doc Trilogy, they weren't designed as a series of books. It's just how they kind of fell. And we grouped them together because they're all love letters to Carcassonne and that part of France. I I, had this idea for this huge story. So did years of research before I started writing, knowing that it was going to be 300 years of history, a Romeo and Juliet story between a Protestant family, Huguenots, and a Catholic family, a feud that was going to last from when they all first met in Carcassonne to Toulouse, to Paris, to Amsterdam, to the Canary Islands, finally to South Africa. So in terms of writing that, I've been I've been thinking about it and writing it. It's going to be a 10-year project when I finished, but I've never had such a big gap between finishing writing a book and publishing it because with The City of Tears, it should have come out in May 2020, but Mm. because of lockdown and uh, the pandemic, we decided to delay until January 2021. And that means that's almost 18 months after I finished writing it. And that's a really odd experience because... I'm supposed to be writing the third book, but I feel utterly unable to move forward until The City of Tears is out in the world. I find it really disabling not to have had any conversations with readers about it yet. And that sense of those characters being kind of frozen, Mm. if you like, that they are just waiting in the wings for their five minute call. Are you influenced by what readers say? No, it's not that it influences me in terms of the storytelling or the characters or that I'm going to give more page space to this person rather than that person. It's more that it almost feels like it jinxes it. The people in the City of Tears, the families that they've met before, Minou Joubert and her husband and their children, the people that are going to go to Paris for 1572 and get caught up in the most notorious engagement of the wars of religion, which is the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, the flight of some of the people who survived to Amsterdam. And then it is, it astounded me as it came out, it is a lost child story. It's it's not what I was expecting, but that's that's the story it turned out to be. And 
it's more that writing on when that part of their story still isn't out in the world, it feels like bad luck in a weird way. Mm. It feels like I need them to be those selves, you know, rather than anything else. So, you know, I'm glad we're publishing in January. That's all I have to say, because the new yeah. one's due in August. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I and know. they're no, I mean, <laughs> huge as well. <laughs> they are huge. I mean, but the, the thing is, it's really, really weird. I mean, I, I've got one behind me. Yeah, so this is The Burning Chambers and The City of Tears, which obviously I don't have finished copies yet, is about the same. Uh, yeah. You've probably got a proof knocking about I there. Have. Mine's been yeah, 540 this one. Yeah, well, there you are. You see, the thing is, though, when I write, I'm a sprinter, which seems a ridiculous thing to say for mighty great tomes that can hold the door open. But I do all of my writing in my head when I'm walking around the Sussex Downs and in the old days, uh, Carcassonne and Amsterdam. So it's not that I've done it all before I sit down, but in a way, I've kind of written it in my head before I ever come to the computer. So the writing is like a sprint at the end of the process. It isn't in the middle of the process, if that makes sense. So once I sit down, I'll write eight hours a day, seven days a week until I have a first draft. And then I'll draw breath. And then I'll start to sort the structure out. And then I will kind of do a third draft, which will be the book it's supposed to have been. But the the writing process for me is very, very intense. Whereas I have lots of friends, and you will have lots of friends the same, Sam, who do a, you know, nine to five, working day and don't work at the weekends you know their writing is like a job job whereas mine is like an essay crisis every time yeah. no matter how long the book is it's an essay crisis yeah I mean I because I used to literally have a I mean I say nine to five job it was never nine to five it was no. more like seven till eleven seven days a week I've really struggled with that institutionalizedness that I had developed over years and years of working in an office so I'm so undisciplined you know I'm married to a, a writer and he's like yeah you he's not a a 4am man but he will get up and do what he always does and goes off and do it and I'm a bit like where's the person who's going to make me do this it's been so interesting I think during lockdown and the pandemic and the and the levels of restrictions people have had that it's been very interesting for a lot of people that they have realized how much um, of their creative energy, if you like, comes from other people. Mm. And that uh, physical separation between the place that you live and the place that you work. And in the end, it's quite interesting for someone like me, you know, I work here in this space that you can see me in. And And it's just off the kitchen, so I can hear Granny Rosie if she needs, and, you know, the dog can go in and out and all of this sort of stuff. I was really becalmed at the beginning um, of lockdown. I mean, I had a book that I needed to write and I just couldn't get on with it. And it was interesting because it shouldn't have been any different for me because I spend a lot of my time on my own in this room. But it was somehow Mm. because the world was different and and the world was quiet outside the door. Mm. But then, of course, it just felt like normal. And I'm very good at, you know, I don't don't get diverted. I I get diverted by the clink of the fridge door opening at six o'clock and someone saying, would you like a glass of wine? I'm diverted by that. Um, But otherwise, in terms of the working, you know, it's this wonderful Picasso uh, comment attributed to Picasso, whether it's true or not. It said that he was asked at the very end of his life by a young artist why, you know, given he was one of the world's leading artists, he still went every day to his studio. And he replied, when inspiration arrives, I want it to find me working. Yes, yeah. And that's how it is for me. I sit here. And some days are better than other days, but I sit here because 
you want to be at your desk when the moment of like, oh my God, if she does that and he does this, then actually the whole of the middle of the section of the novel suddenly works. You know, the thing that you haven't been able to unknot like a cat's cradle and suddenly it just like, pow, you've got it. You've got to be here at your desk to, to do it, you know, so... Because you start writing at 4am, is that how that developed? Yeah. You know, in my day, I'm older than you, and my day would have been uh, described as a square. I was always, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the sort of girl that went to bed early, got up early. I was never wild <laughs> in that sort of way. I go to bed when it's dark and get up when it's light. <laughs> it's a good job you don't live in Scotland. That's all I can <laughs> No, no, I'd never be up, never do any work at all. Um, but at the moment, I do go to bed at 8.30. You know, and I've always believed that thing that my Mara's used to say, you know, two hours before midnight is worth one after midnight. You know, I've yeah. never been very good at staying up late. And I just am better at that, at that liminal time of the very early morning between the night and the day and that I'm most creative then that sort of sense that when you wake up and you're in a a slight not a dream world quite but it, the house is dark the house is sleeping always had a very busy house with a lot of people and a lot of family and caring responsibilities and so starting at four in the morning I never set an alarm I get up when I wake is a way of having sometimes four hours of silence and work before anybody else gets up or needs anything and that has been the lifesaver for me as a writer and you know it's not about having little children actually because that's that was way way back in the past but it's more about having been a carer and that sense that the minute the light comes up and the silhouettes of the trees start to come back to life and you can see the birds in the garden and the first car going by and then you see that the dishwasher needs emptying and all of this sort of stuff so it's about not engaging with your real life for as long as possible because if I have four hours under my belt before the real world comes back then you can always go back to it but if you don't get started you never quite find your stride in the day you must know this it's about finding yeah. your stride yeah definitely so I wanted to talk a bit about being a carer and you've written a book haven't you a spare pair of hands which is out yeah, next summer extra pair of hands <laughs> extra pair of hands extra pair of hands I'd like to talk a bit about that because I think that's an experience that a lot of listeners will either be having that either have been a carer you know to children or parents or or know is kind of coming for them so tell us a bit about it's Greg's mum isn't it who lives with you yeah well Not I mean your... yes the book is called an extra pair of hands and it's being published by Welcome Collection, so the Welcome Trust and Profile, and it will publish in June 2021 to coincide with Carers Week. And, you know, it's, it's more personal type of book than I normally write, as you mm. know. You know, I love storytelling. I like, you know, by big stories at the City of Tears and Burning Chambers, they're all about strong women charging about having adventures, you know, historical adventures. And that's my joy to write those stories and to bring unheard and underheard women's stories to the fore in historical fiction. But my life over the past 10 years has been as a carer. More than 10 years ago now, my wonderful mother and father moved in here as well. They had a sort of separate part of the house and my father had Parkinson's. So I supported my mother caring for my father and 
he died in 2011. And then I was around for my mother, who was amazing and wonderful. And she didn't need care in that same sort of way, but she did need company. And having been widowed after 60 years of marriage and had a few health problems, but she she entirely looked after herself and had that extraordinary experience that she was quite literally here one day. And then on the shortest day of the year, 21st of December, 2014, she was gone. And that was a devastating loss. It, it was so different from the grief and the loss of my father, who was preparing to die for a long time and had a very strong faith, which meant that we were ready for him to go and he was ready to go. And then Granny Rosie, Greg's mother, my mother-in-law, uh, who's lived with us for 25 years, wow. and it was a brilliant brilliant granny you know the sort of granny that did cartwheels in the garden and yeah. so you know the, the moment we moved home to Sussex Granny Rosie moved in with us so you know the column of credits is all on her side frankly but she is 90 now and over the last few years last four years in particular her health has deteriorated and in the last 18 months to the degree that she is in a wheelchair so for the first time I'm a full-time carer now so and some people knew this about me that actually part of the reason I couldn't do this or that anymore was because I had a different level of responsibilities. And so when I was asked to write it, I thought really long and hard about whether I wanted to. And then I thought, well, you know, actually, you know, care is a feminist issue, really. There are lots of wonderful men who are caring as well. But within the paid care sector and very much in the unpaid care sector, by the age of 59, a woman has a 50-50 chance of being an unpaid carer. 8.8 million of us are unpaid carers. And without us, the whole of the health system collapses truthfully. And it's only getting more and more acute, partly because there are a lot of people who have not had children and most of the caring is done by children. And the other part of it is something that we should be thrilled about, which is many, many people are living really fantastic, much older lives. But with that has come an increase in the number of people being diagnosed with dementia or Alzheimer's and needing care in a way that it wasn't quite so significant, say, even 20 years ago, because people didn't live as long. And I've spent a lot of my life with older people, and I feel that the language around ageing and older people needs to change. I think we should be celebrating age, not seeing it as a problem. And I am in a very privileged position in that I'm a writer, so I work at home. I'm in a position to be able to care. I love my mother-in-law very deeply. I loved my parents very deeply and was parented myself really well. So for me, it's been a giving back to people who have cared for me. Many people who are carers are caring for people for whom they don't necessarily have a great affection or who were not good parents or in-laws to them. There are many people who are caring on their own. A lot of older women and older men are caring for a spouse and are lonely. So it is an enormous issue. And I realised that I felt really strongly about it because I feel it's a very defining part of who I am, being a carer, actually. And so it's been such a different type of book to write. You know, I'm not someone who really writes personal mm. in that same sort of way. But I'm nearly 60 now. And, and I suddenly thought, God, you know, with all of my career as a novelist, actually, these last now 11, 12 years, they have been very defining about my career as well. And actually, I suppose in the end, the story, An Extra Pair of Hands, you know, the book, it's a tribute. It's a tribute to my dad and to my mum and now to Granny Rosie. And I really hope that it will strike a chord with a lot of people because one in six of us, so just imagine everybody listening today, will be in the position that I'm in. Either is already 
or will find themselves in that position at some moment. So it's a huge number of people. And it's not talked about very much, exactly as you did, dear Sam, with the shift in the menopause and saying, look, it happens to all of us at some moment. Why are we not talking about it? I feel the same about care, that it's something that we should all be talking about. And because of the nature of the people in government, the way that women voices are often sidelined and because it is often seen as a women's issue even though there's been a report that's been knocking about for a long time now about what needs to happen in care it has never been activated because it's not a priority for the people making the decisions and that's why i said care is a feminist issue because if there are not women in the room it's not exclusively women who care but the burden of care falls predominantly on women and it's that classic thing isn't it that women's work women's work that's me doing inverted commas in the air has no value at all and this is just regarded as an extension of it yeah the carer's allowance which is really essential for many people who are caring is i mean it's paltry i mean it's it's offensively low and many women in particular have to give up work to care for somebody full time i've been so lucky that i have never had to care for somebody with dementia or Alzheimer's but that is such an enormous thing for people because it's possible you'd be caring for somebody for a very long time if physically their health is good and many women have to give up work in order to care full-time for somebody who needs 24-hour care and then when that person has died they have no prospect of getting back or very little prospect of getting back into the job market and often lose the financial support that was helping them to do that role. So as you say, it's women's work, not just being undervalued in emotional terms or in terms of value, but financially. It's very, very tough for a lot of people. So um, this is why we're, you know, it's important that we all talk about it and all decide what we as a, a nation want to do about caring for our brilliant older people i mean the thing is it's not like you don't have like a full-time job just because it's (laughs) just because it's at home you know writing but also the women's prize which we'll talk about in the minute which has consumed a huge amount of your time you know you have been doing this as well as a full-time job well yes yes indeed indeed but you see again you know i have a husband you know when my parents were here granny rosie this is why we called the book and it's granny rosie's title an extra pair of hands because for all of us the word carer feels a little bit uncomfortable because it sounds transactional it takes away the essential thing for all of us which is love it doesn't mean it's not often very tough or very upsetting or exhausting and the repetition of being a carer everybody who is in that position will know you know the the same conversations the, the medication the hospitals all of these things that punctuate a life for someone like me it is much easier being a writer and with the women's prize and the things that I do because in the end I can usually say I'm really sorry something's happened I, I'm not going to be able to be there but I'll be there in three hours time instead or I'll be at the end of the phone for somebody who has a structured job at who's a teacher or a nurse or a a doctor or work in a shop or whatever it is, that is really, really difficult because all carers talk about how painful it is to become someone who's seen as unreliable and most carers become unreliable. So I've been able to do my full-time job around being a carer. But when I look back, there are books not finished, books not written, things that I would have loved to have done, which just I couldn't do. But they are very small on the scale of things because being a writer does give you enormous flexibility in your time in a way that I hadn't realised how valuable that would become. So I've, of course, been writing you know, the City of Tears all of last year and then an extra pair of hands this year. So essentially, I've been able to do my full-time job whilst doing my caring job. And, you know, in a way, it's been one of the things that's been so good about writing an extra pair of hands is that it's made me really grateful, actually, that I have been able to keep going. I haven't had to duck out, which a lot of people do have to. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. And how does it work with you and, and Greg? Do you share the caring? Is it the bulk of it you? How does that work? Greg and I met at school. Oh, really? Um, oh. Yeah. When we were 15. And it, that has made an enormous difference because, of course, therefore, he first met my parents, you know, when he was, he was never a spotty youth, obviously. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I, you know, we've known each other and our families. We live a few miles from where he grew up, a few miles from where I grew up. My sister's around the corner, his brother's around the corner. We are, you know, the apples haven't fallen very far from the tree, even though Greg and I both went off, him to Paris and me to university in the UK, and then we've come back to Sussex. This does make a huge amount of difference because, of course, it's not somebody you don't know coming into the household. So we've had a multi-generational household, as I said, with Granny Rosie for 25 years. So we've always had three generations here. We've only got two now because my children are grown-ups. You know, they're 30 and 28 and they come and go all the time, but they no longer live here full time. But both my sisters are close by and my sister is a granny. And so it means that there are lots of people about. That makes an enormous amount of difference. You know, we have a very old-fashioned family village structure in that point of view. With Rosie, a 90 old woman doesn't want her son in a bathroom with her and nor should she have to you know mm. um so it's those sorts of things it's that Greg's always been the cook in the household. He was at home with the children when they were young, not me. I was working. So we've always just, you know, juggled things between us. Greg used to be a teacher, so I'd take children to school, he'd bring them home, you know, all of these things. So we've always had a household where whoever is there does the thing that needs to be done. But with care, a lot of it is about intimacy and a lot of it for older people is about dignity. And so I do those things because it's appropriate. It's more about being girls together actually, as she'd put it. And we sit at the end of the kitchen table every evening and she has a G&T and I have my glass of wine and we natter. And she talks about her childhood in the 1930s and asks me where I was on VE day. And I point <laughs> out that I'm not her contemporary. No. But, we are, we're, <laughs> but we're pals and we're very, very lucky. We've always been pals. I mean, it's often sad for all sorts of obvious reasons. You know, sometimes it's not so great and Rosie doesn't feel she's gonna see another Christmas or whatever and I will be in despair when that happens but at the same time we manage mostly to have a pretty lovely time together. It's really nice, it's really nice. The feminism that you describe in forming an extra pair of hands has obviously informed your entire career hasn't it because it's <laughs> yes. you know I mean the Women's Prize has just celebrated, spent a year celebrating 25 <laughs> years and that's down to you Kate Moss. Well lots of people, lots of people lots of people but but in yes. the first instance <laughs> well in the first instance yes and you know we did an event to celebrate the winner of winners which we did a year of reading women where we looked back at all the 25 winners the most recent of course being Maggie O'Farrell for her beautiful novel Hamnet and the public vote there were 45 million people engaged with the, the reading women campaign throughout the world and many 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 thousands voted and the runaway winner indeed was uh, Chimamanda Ngozi's Adichie's Half of a Yellow Sun and we did an event last night, me in Sussex and Chimamanda in Lagos, <laughs> and which is mind-boggling really, isn't it? And she, she said something really lovely. She said, but the thing is, it's about if you see something that needs changing or needs challenging, you know, you have two choices. And this is what I feel about it all, that you either moan about it or you go and do something. And so the thing about the Women's Prize was we could see that there was 
not a problem with women being published, although it was a very narrow band of women being published, you know, white middle-class women for the most part being published, uh, women of colour, black women, working-class writers, their voices were not being celebrated in the same sort of way at all. But there was a problem clearly in honouring the work of women. So books were out there, but you know, fewer than 9% of books ever shortlisted for any major literary prize were authored by women, even though some 60% of novels published were by women. So there was a clear disconnect between the valuing of women's writing this was the issue. And so the choice was very straightforward. Either you go and storm the barricades or you say, do you know what? We're not going to go and do that. We're going to set up something different and try and do it differently. And it is a wonder this year for me to be celebrating 25 years, to look at the millions of people that have engaged with the prize. And the fact that when I first was talking about it, people would say, if women were any good, they'd win the real prizes. Oh. Women, you'll make, you know, all of this. Women are second class. You're making women second class by putting them in a ghetto. And you go, OK, that I totally respect that point of view. But what do you think should be done? Well, if, you know, and then it's, you know, this is sexist. That's the other thing. Mm. And of course, your choice, as you know, Sam, is you just have to think, do I think I'm doing the right thing? Do we think we're doing the right thing? Setting up a prize that every year will honour and champion and amplify the very best writing by women in fiction writing. And if the answer to that is yes, then you just have to shut your ears to the criticism and the nonsense and get on with it. God knows what it would have been like in the days of social media, because it was bad enough anyway. You know, I remember I had two young children and I was rung up at home by journalists. And when I would say, Can I, I can't speak at the moment, that, you know, it would appear in the paper the next day, Moss refuses to speak. You know, I mean, it was, it was pretty unpleasant in the early days. But now, oh, you know, I, I have so much admiration for, for women, younger women in particular, who just put up with this barrage of real vile misogyny on social media. And I'm a bit older now, so I have, you know, sometimes look at my phone, but <laughs> not okay. so much, you know. But it's, it is a wonderful thing to feel that, in the end, I'm an optimist, and I believe that most women want to stand up and shout in support of other women and the incredible women that have been judges over the years you included honestly I loved it I loved every yeah. minute of it you know so many women and and of course men but so many women have given their time to the prize and and I look at that I look at the library of books and the aim was always to put the classics of tomorrow in the hands of readers today and to just have judges who were exceptional so that people would see the judging panels and think well if Sam Baker likes that or Tessa Ross likes this or you know Paula Hawkins likes that then I'd give it a go and that was always our aim as well to choose passionate wonderfully achieving women in whatever field it was because in the end that's why we all like a book if someone you admire or like says if you've read this you think oh I'll go exactly. and buy that I'll go and borrow that yeah. I'll go and you know lend it and that's definitely been what's happened with Hamnet hasn't it that yeah. people yeah. you know have picked it up because other people have said that they liked it and now it's won the Women's Prize and the Waterstones Book of the Year. And and it never isn't joyous. Every year I think, oh, another year. And then when you listen to readers saying, I mean, I feel this for my own fiction as well, obviously, when people say, well, I'd, I'd never read any of your books, but somebody, my mum said, try this, and I've just read it and I loved it. And have you written any others? <laughs> it's mm. like, you know, it takes me back to my very first independent reading. I think it, this is true. When we were in a very cold, wet family holiday in Devon in the 1970s, and I have two younger sisters. They're really close in age, you know, four and five years younger than me. And it just, as always, rained the entire time. And it was one of those holidays where everything smelt of those paraffin heaters and 
wet oil skins and all of this. And I found on the bookshelf in this cottage, which of course the book was damp slightly, everything. We were damp for two weeks. I pulled it out and it was called The Body in the Library by a writer called Agatha Christie. (laughs) And I thought, well, well, I've read everything else. I'll give this a go. And it had an old fashioned telephone, you know, sort of stand telephone. And I loved it. And I did, in all innocence, then look at the front and think, I wonder if she's written anything else. (laughs) 76 other novels. But it's that, and that's the point of prizes. And indeed, the point of doing book events is to engage with readers because, you know, you're a writer, I'm a writer. I publish books to be read. For me, the book is not quite finished until I passed it on to the reader. The reader completes the book for me, which is, of course, why I'm finding it slightly hard to get on with book three in the series, because The City of Tears, which I'm really proud of, and I think it's a really cracking story. You know, it's not quite completed yet because the readers haven't had it. So the prize is supposed to do that always, just to say, you don't have to love all of these books, but give them a go. And if you don't like that one, move on to another one on the shortlist. You know, it's it's that. Mm. Do you think the prize has some things to learn from younger women now? I think we all have things to learn from yes. younger women. I also think we have things to learn from older women. It won't surprise you to know that I've never felt that age was the most relevant thing in what somebody says or does or achieves. I think it's the spirit of heart and the the way in which anybody, whoever they are, whatever they look like, whatever age they are, engages with other people in the world outside them. So I feel very strongly, you know, I'm at the top of middle age now, I would say, that what we all ought to be doing is making sure that we listen up to the women that have gone before and down to the women that are coming after us. And the dialogue between generations is something that has been challenged quite a lot recently, more than often. And I think partly that is to do with technology and the fact that there are whole discussions happening that are quite specific to different age groups, platforms that attract particular age groups. And I've always thought, you know, that was the silliest thing about school, that you're supposed to be friends with somebody just because their birthday falls within the same 12 months. <laughs> you know, that it's always seemed a bit bonkers. But I do absolutely think we need to listen uh, to younger women. I have a 30-year-old daughter and I have a 20-year-old and a 17-year-old niece. Indeed, I have a 35-year-old niece. And there are many discussions about feminism, which do feel generational to me. But I always then go and say to my daughter and my nieces, okay, tell me your take on all of this. Because the other consequence, I think, of social media and the ability of anybody to type anything and it be out in the world within a minute is that sort of integrity of thought and research and checking your facts and actually listening to what was really said rather than Chinese whispers of amplification, you know, all of this is problematic in all sorts of ways. But I think in some of the debates, quite often, if you're my sort of age, you only come into them at the periphery. So I think it's essential to listen to younger women and say, no, that's not what we're saying about this, that, the other, whatever whatever the this, that and the other is. But I do also say when I'm talking to younger feminists and, and we're having those conversations, you know, learn the names of the women who fought for abortion rights to get the vote. You know, all of these things, it's very easy to forget that other women have gone before us and have fought for the things that we now take for granted. And the next generation will take other things that we've done for granted. You've been very campaigning in many ways, Sam, and you know all about this, about what it means to be a woman in the world of business and all of these things. 
And I think that is extremely important, that women's history vanishes quite easily. And as feminists and women, whatever age, we owe it to those who've gone before us to not forget and not let their battles be erased because it's become commonplace. You know, and I think it's fantastic that, you know, when I talk to my children about being in an office in the 80s and, and they would say, well, yeah, but you wouldn't have had any problem. And I went, ah, And the idea that my generation accepted that there would be hassle in the office from men, that it was your responsibility to minimise the opportunities for those things and to deal with it because the pressure of women aren't really suited office environments was basically if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. So, and then, mm. you know, my daughter once said to me, why didn't you go and complain to the boss? And I said, he was the boss. Yes. And that's great that they were like, what? Because everyone of my age took it for granted. And women looked after other women by saying, you know, don't get in the lift with him. It was just, you know, part and parcel of it. So I think so many brilliant things have happened. I think feminism has done so much good. And I just feel that we sometimes we get trapped in a very negative spiral, that we look about the, the things that people are not agreeing on and forget that 98% of stuff, actually, everybody feels the same about. Feminism, you know, the F word, what else does it mean? Well, it means fairness. And in all of these things. So I'm still pretty optimistic, despite <laughs> despite <laughs> this terrible year of 2020. But yeah, we just need to listen. We need to listen. So you're in your late 50s now. How do you feel the kind of last decade shaped you and shaped your identity, that kind of the shift that we all go through at this point? Do you know, I remember you and I meeting right before you were starting to write your book, The Shift. Yeah. And you're a bit younger than me, so you're a slightly different place in that. I was, you know, out the other side and waving gaily, um, yes, free, yeah. of, free of all of those things. But it was very, had a very profound influence on me talking to you about that. And of course, then reading your book, which I think is amazing, is that there were quite a few things for me that I realised were about being perimenopausal and then menopausal that actually I had attributed to something else. Because my 50s, which coincided with the shift, were about grieving and care. Mm. So I think some of the things that were actually to do with menopause, and it's one of the things in an extra pair of hands I put in, that many women are coping with becoming a carer at the same moment that actually their bodies and sometimes their minds are going completely haywire. So looking back, some of the things that I felt I'd been very untouched by the menopause, but I think that's because I ascribed a lot of it to grief and Therefore, you know, feeling like I was in a bit of a fug and, uh, you know, normally have a very good memory and my memory was really quite poor for a while. I'm a small person and I'm often cold, but I was sometimes hot and cold. And again, I put that down to kind of emotion, really. Mm. So it was reading your book and I thought, you know, I think a lot of that was actually about the menopause, not really grieving. Although I was very bereaved by the death of my father and then and then the death of my mother. So for me, I would say the 50s have been quite a challenging decade. I'm not going to be sorry to be shot of them, actually. I do age inflation. I've been <laughs> saying that I'm nearly 60 for some time because um, my dad died a few months before my 50th birthday. And then my ma died in the middle of all of that. And so I've had a big shift in my working and emotional and home life in my 50s. So I'm looking forward. I'm really thinking out come the flags on my 60th birthday. I'm, you know, you know, I think at the moment I look like a tired 59 year old but I somehow believe that when I'm 60 people are going to go oh you don't look like 60 and of course <laughs> although I tell myself I don't care about that I'm looking forward to saying oh yeah. no 
And <laughs> yes, I would say in a way, the 50s have probably been my least favourite decade as an adult. Interesting. On that note, what's your emotional age? In a way, I feel close to my teenage self in many ways, funnily enough. Now, whether that's about introspection that comes from the pandemic and therefore living a very, very, very domestic and home life in a way that since my 20s, I haven't done. And possibly because of writing an extra pair of hands, I've been looking back on my childhood and my teenage years and my family. And I live in a mile and a half from where I grew up. So there was this extraordinary thing when the first lockdown happened, the real lockdown, when everything was shut. And my husband and I would walk through the centre of Chichester, which is, you know, we live about a mile north of, of Chichester itself. And it reminded us both very, very strongly of Sundays in the 70s, where mm-hmm. you walked through the town. There wasn't anywhere to go. There were a couple of posh restaurants, but they were, you know, grown-ups went there. Young people didn't go to a restaurant on their own without their parents. And they did Sunday lunch and shut at 2.30. And so if you wanted to walk with your boyfriend hand in hand, you walked around the empty city, the empty town. And I think maybe that has meant that a Emotionally, I feel quite close to that girl at the moment. And also, I suppose, I feel quite close to the person who first had children because my children are now the age I was when I had them. And and I remember that very much, that enormous shift that happens when you become a mother. I felt that was a big emotional step change for me. And, you know, my children are 30 and 28, and that was when I was pregnant and having children exactly. So I feel quite close to that person as well. I think one of the joys about living for so long with older people and, you know, there were many other older people. My godmother only died a couple of years ago. She was an Anglican nun at the age of 104. Both of my grannies nearly hit 100. My auntie died a couple of years ago, just shy of 100. So I think one of the wonderful consequences about spending a lot of time with older people is that I'm often pretty young in the room. <laughs> You know, I think, you know, in your business, you're such an important editor and uh, journalist and writer. And then all of these things, you were often surrounded by children, virtually, uh, you know, very young people. Whereas my day to day life is spent with people much older than me. And I think that's that's okay because it kind of keeps you quite young. So, yeah, the reverse of spending a lot of time with 20 somethings makes you feel completely geriatric. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. You know, whereas, you know, I've still got my knees. I can still run. Now I'm going to ask you the questions I always ask. Give me a book recommendation. What book would you push on a friend? Of course, the entire Women's Prize for Fiction, 25 winners. (laughs) But actually, the one I'm going to say is a book called Dancing with the Octopus, which is written by an American woman called Deborah Harding. It's the most extraordinary memoir. It's a story of a 14-year-old girl in the Midwest who was abducted from her church car park when she was 14 and raped and left for dead. And the thing that makes this book so exceptional, I think, is that although it is the real story, the story of a true crime, she is an exceptional writer, I think, beautiful lyrical writer. But also it is a really good call to arms, say, in the end, even when something as awful as the things that have happened to Deborah Harding have happened, there is a way of taking control of your story, however awful that story is. For me, I think it deserves to win all the prizes. I'm off to buy that then. Um, (laughs) Good. (laughs) What piece of advice would you give younger women? Travel hopefully. Travel hopefully. I think that there is, for all sorts of reasons, a lot of the messaging about being a woman and being a girl is quite negative. I think there's quite a lot of 
rightly attention to all the terrible things and the injustices and the lack of equal pay and domestic but you know there's there are all the things that we as women know and fight against and try to make you know a, a small difference however we can but I think also what's really important is travel hopefully be yourself raise your eyes up to the horizon not down to the ground wonderful tell me your old bird role model old bird role model yes well like an old woman not an actual bird no, not actually. Well, yeah, I say that, you see, because I really like birds. And, it's, and I, at the moment, there's quite a lot of goldfinch activity going on right outside my window. Um, I'm going to go, and this won't surprise you, and it's not the right Bronte for you, I know, but I am actually going to go um, for Emily Bronte, even though I suspect she was not the greatest of company. I do think that her one novel, Wuthering Heights, I genuinely believed it changed what it was possible for women to write. And I think that that extraordinary ambition of that novel, the refusal to play the Victorian game, that it was appropriate for women to write about these subjects, but not those subjects, the incredible sort of raw violence and force of that book. And the fact that she just lived a very difficult and odd and challenging life, but as herself, right up until her death from from TB, like, you know, the, the, the whole family decimated. She was a woman out of her time in a way. She just lived her life as she was determined to live it against all expectations and traditions and pressures to be a certain sort of woman. And I think it didn't make her happy, but I think that that is the lesson for us all live as ourselves and try to resist being drawn into being looking differently or feeling differently or women should do this or women shouldn't do that you know so follow emily be more emily bronte brilliant uh what's your superpower talking no um (laughs) one christmas for some reason must have all been very bored everybody came up with their kind of superpowers with a slight edge to it And mine was described as relentless optimism or relentless perkiness. (laughs) Um, And I do remember my daughter once saying to me when she was waiting for news of something that meant a great deal to her. She said, Mum, I just just want to say this one thing. Tomorrow, if I haven't got what I want from this, please don't tell me the silver lining. So my superpower, which is a positive and a negative, is always trying to see the best in a situation when sometimes it's all right to be disappointed. Or as Chimamanda uh, Ngozi Adichie said to me yesterday in the, the interview, she said, you know, sometimes a slice of self-pity is okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, how many fucks do you give? More than I should, actually. You know, for all of my advice to, you know, be yourself and do all of those things, I do, I do do all of those things. But I am um, sometimes disabled by empathy (laughs) I would say I do very much worry about how other people are feeling and that does kind of play into how many fucks you give I've never been able to just not worry about what other people think I'm always kind of alert to is that person a bit upset or or whatever and that means that sometimes I care too much about what other people think definitely just human that's brilliant thank you very much Kate it's been lovely it's to been chat to you. Such a pleasure. I wish we were together and yeah, we could be going too. off to wherever. And no hideous technical problems. No, but <laughs> well, we did it in the end. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear your feedback. You can reach me on Twitter at Sam Baker and Instagram at the other Sam Baker using the hashtag The Shift. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each week on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you like what you hear, please do rate and subscribe because it really does help other people find us.